Hello, Penn Medicine, and welcome to the Well-Focused Podcast. I'm Mitch Sherman, and today we have Dr. Ramik Hunt, who wears a bunch of different hats. He is a physician, researcher, motivational speaker, New York Times best-selling author. So you have a lot going on. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. So, you know, let's get into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up here at uh, Penn Medicine at Princeton, I should say. Yeah, um, so I went uh, to med school in, at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Brunswick. And when I uh, graduated, I, you know, I did my residency there. And then I just stayed. And um, I was up in New Brunswick for a while running their clinic. And, um, and then I moved down to Princeton about maybe 15 years ago. And I've been there ever since. And so we're still affiliated with the medical school. So we still teach the medical students and residents. And so about seven or eight years ago, um, I got into weight management. And then so I've been building that center since then. Awesome. Yeah, and that's exactly why we wanted to have you on the podcast. You know, I know you're board certified in obesity. I know that you have a, a new book about weight management. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what sort of what new things you have going on with regards to that over at Princeton. Yeah, so when I started the weight management program, it came about because I wanted to, you know, I, I do internal medicine, board certified internal medicine, and I wanted to do, wanted to focus on something as well. Like I do diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, all these things. And I, you know, and I realized that a lot of this weight and obesity contributed to all these things. And I, I wondered if there was, uh, you know, a specialty in obesity and I had never heard of it. So, but I, I, I did a Google search and I Googled it, and it just so happened that there was a um, was, uh, a, a conference about obesity medicine. And so I went to that conference, and I was floored. I, I didn't realize how much new science there was around obesity and how it just wasn't the four words that we learned in med school, which is eat less, move more. It was a whole science behind it. And so... It fascinated me to the point where I needed to know more. So I just delved in. And then when I came back, I was just, I said, you know, I got to get board certified. And then I just started practicing obesity medicine. I got board certified, started practicing. And actually, it probably was the reverse. I started practicing what I had learned at that, at that conference in, as I was preparing for my boards. And, uh, and then I, and, and I started this comprehensive center where we have personal trainers, nutritionists, behavioral specialists, physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, and the like. And so we really focus on the patient and we have an obesity-centered approach where the, the, we understand that you know, your diabetes is affected by your obesity. So we can treat the obesity, we'll be treating the diabetes. If we treat the obesity, we'll be treating the hypertension. And so we focus on the obesity and we focus on obesity as a disease because obesity is a disease. For sure. I love that you said that too. You know, I've recorded a previous podcast with um, Dr. Colleen Tewksbury here at Penn Medicine and we talked about people aren't obese, but people have obesity. And when you address it as a disease, one, you know, more scientifically accurate and two, because this is such um, a touchy subject for those that suffer from the disease, it creates a more empathetic environment for them. Absolutely. 
And, you know, even before the pandemic, obesity rates were obviously growing significantly in America. And now with such an increase in sedentary lifestyle for a, a lot of people outside of America, too, but obviously we're talking currently in America, um, the science is probably going to continue growing. So, you know, I'm sure you could talk for hours and hours that you've written a book about it. I guess a brief summary of how the science is continuing to grow. Yeah. So one, as you mentioned, obesity is a disease. And so we should treat it as such. So it's not that you're obese. Like you said, it's that you have this, you have obesity, a disease that is obesity and it has pathophysiology. So we know that there is a set point, if you will. A lot of people like to use other terminology, but I think the easiest way to, to talk about it is to say that it, it's a set point. And so your body has a set point for weight or basically your calorie storage and your calorie storage is your fat. And when you deviate from that set point, whether up or down, your body tries to bring you back like a thermostat back to that set point. And it has ways of doing that, uh, which is it can, if you lose weight, it can make you more hungry with, and one of the main hunger hormone is ghrelin. And so ghrelin, I call it the hunger gremlin, and it, uh, it, it makes you want to eat. And then there are satiating hormones that make you feel satisfied or satiated. And there are a number of those. And so what your body does is increase your ghrelin to make you more hungry and then decreases the hormones that make you feel satisfied. And so to say somebody lacks willpower or it's their fault, it, it, it doesn't really tell the whole picture because yeah, you can have willpower for a limited amount of time, but your body is always fighting to get you back to your set point. Like your body has a set point for pH, it's 7.40. If you de deviate from that set point, your body will bring you back to that. You don't have to willpower your way through that. Your body has a, a set point for your temperature, 98.6. If you increase your temperature, you will sweat. If you decrease your temperature, you will shiver. So, and you, But your body also have a, has a, a set point for your weight. And so your body will continue to do like it does in, uh, with its other set points and making sure you get back. And so um, once you understand that and understand how that mechanism works, then one, you take the guilt away from the patient. And I always tell the patient, it's not your fault. And we're going to work at getting you to a healthier weight. And then two, we educate them on why they feel hungry, why they never feel satisfied. And once they understand that they have a better shot at, you know, working on their weight and getting to a healthier weight. Yeah, I love that. I'm always a big proponent of educating the patient about what's going on. Um, my background is in exercise science, so I always like to explain to somebody I'm working with, whether it's a patient, a client, an athlete, whatever, why they're doing what they're doing. Why are you feeling this way? Why is your body reacting this way? Because there's a lot of empowerment in that, too. And Absolutely. The patient a lot of control and therefore accountability and satisfaction down the road when they achieve what they you know set out to absolutely i mean you know a lot of times like you said it gives it, it empowers them like when i the, the first thing i talk to the patient about is not like oh i want you to do this i want you to do that i want you to do this i explain to them what is going on and they're like you know you're the first doctor who said to me it's not my fault like you're the first doctor who told me that this is a, a disease, this is an actual medical issue. 
and then we and then we and then we go from there and give them a strategy in order to get to a healthier weight and more importantly than that and i tell them this in the beginning too is that i'm not really so concerned about you losing weight because 80% of people who lose weight regain it 80 to 90% in fact i'm worried i want you to maintain the weight that you have lost obviously we have to get to that point but Throughout the process, like I, I call, I, I tell people, it's like a plane coming in for landing. You know, when the, you know, stewardess, you know, the flight attendant says, you know, prepare the cabin for landing. I'm preparing you for maintenance, so that when you get to maintenance, you know how to maintain your weight loss. And you definitely don't want that plane to go back up in the air after you <laughs> land. <laughs> no, I really appreciate these analogies too. You know, I think one one thing that lacks in a lot of healthcare professionals is the ability to communicate to everybody. You know, I'm sure you could sit here and talk to the listeners, every chemical, hormone, you know, what's going on in the body. That doesn't mean anything to the average individual. But when you say, hey, when your body gets warm, you sweat. When your body gets cold, you shiver. Airplane analogy. It's definitely uh, easier to digest, if you will. <laughs> yes, no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, but listen, I like, that, I like that you mentioned, you know, keeping weight off as it comes off, because I know that that's something very common in fad diets, which, you know, they're a fad. They're everywhere. And unlike fads, I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. You know, a lot of people might say, hey, I lost 20 pounds in four weeks. And two weeks later, they've gained back 10 pounds or something because they got to whatever benchmark they set for themselves and went back to their normal ways. So, you know, whether it's intermittent fasting, cutting out carbs completely, some variation of keto, well, you know, what are your thoughts generally on, I guess, the common factor amongst these fad diets? So I, I think a fad diet is not good because it's... It, it, it's it, typically they're not sustainable. However, what I think we should always be looking at is what is sustainable and what is effective. And so from my research, keeping your carbohydrates at a reasonable level, the, um, the Institute of Medicine says that you, you shouldn't be eating more than 150 grams of carbs per day. And the typical American eats 300 to 400 grams of carbs per day. So we're eating double the amount of carbohydrates. In fact, the, the, the most important meal of the day, which is breakfast, it's almost 90% carbs. People mm -hmm. eat cereal, people eat. And so we are um, starting the day off with refined carbohydrates. Now, obviously fiber is good, which is a carb, but refined carbohydrates are not good because they turn into sugar. And you don't need a lot of sugar in your body. One, because your body has a storage of sugar called glycogen in your liver and in your muscle. But two, your body can make its own sugar and it has other ways to produce energy through ketones and other, and other factors. So um, the more sh sugar your body, the more it stores it as fat. And so I, I think a diet or a lifestyle, because it really is a lifestyle, that limits the amount of sugar and refined carbohydrates is a lifestyle that is healthy. In fact, the number one cause of death is cardiovascular disease, which is heart attacks and strokes. The second is cancer. The third 
unfortunately, is, me uh, is medical errors. But the number one cause of death is cardiovascular, which the, the number one cause of that for very, um, is, is diabetes. And so diabetes is not a disease of anything other than excess sugar. And so we need to limit the amount of sugar because it leads to insulin resistance and it leads to diabetes. And that leads to cardiovascular events, including heart attack and strokes. And there's definitely an extra step in the education that I, I think most people you know, should know and to some degree because you're saying refined carbs, uh, excess sugar. Now, does that mean that the apple that I had for breakfast today is not something I should be eating because it is carbohydrates, it is sugar, but I know it's not exactly what you're referring to here. Yeah, it's not exactly the same. However, so let's go, let's talk about why it's not the same. It's not a Snickers bar, right? It's not a, it's not sugar. And it, that skin has fiber. But if you were to squeeze just the juice out of it, it would literally just be glucose. And it would be glucose like any other glucose. But the fact that you have the whole apple, you have fiber, it gets absorbed much slower than if you were to eat just drink simple syrup, for instance, like just <laughs> sugar. <laughs> um, so yes, an apple is, is, is better, much better, because it has fiber. But if you have diabetes, let's say, and I'm not saying you do, but if you have diabetes, if you were eating a bunch of bananas, I would say limit it, because to, you better believe once you check your sugar, your number, your, your, your blood sugar would go up because glucose is glucose is glucose. But it's much better than eating a candy bar. Um, it's, it doesn't mean you can't have an apple. You should eat apple. We're not saying you shouldn't eat a banana. It's okay to eat a banana, but it, it just needs to be um, within reason because it still will raise your sugar if you eat, if you overindulge. Yeah. And one thing I, I want to um, clarify is, you know, we're definitely at this point talking about those with diabetes, but for the listeners, you know, say that there's a nurse who's about to, you know, have a 12 hour shift and she forgot to eat breakfast and all of a sudden needs, needs a quick burst of energy. Maybe banana is a great choice for her because they or him that they need that energy right away to help sustain themselves for a little bit. Yeah. So I think if you don't have, you know, if you're at a healthy weight, it's great. Um, but if, if you're not at a healthy weight, I think that you should plan. So there are four things, in my opinion, that are important in getting to a healthy weight. It's addressing cravings, hunger, tracking your food, mm -hmm. and planning. So I help people with cravings and hunger. I can't plan for them. Like I can't go to the supermarket for them. I can't pack their lunchbox. And I can't track for them. And so that's a very good point. Like, yeah, you got a healthy weight, you grab a banana. It's, it's no big deal. You got a healthy weight, you don't have insulin resistance. You don't have a weight problem. Because the more weight that you have on you, particularly your visceral or your abdominal, your, your belly fat, the more insulin resistance you have. And, the, and then it, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle. But if you're at a healthy weight, it, it's, it's not as important until it is until it is, until it becomes an issue. So yeah, grabbing a, a banana is great. And, and again, it's way better than grabbing a Snickers. And so, but if you're not at a healthy weight, I would recommend that you plan better. 
in that you, you, you make sure that you bring some healthy snacks that are not going to make it more difficult for you to lose weight. Yeah, and, and the, the population that you're addressing that might end up needing some sort of sustainable change, it's not going to come in the way, as we alluded to earlier, in a fad diet. Um, on the well-focused team, Dana Rothschild, uh, my, my supervisor, has this saying that I really enjoy, and she goes, if you go on a diet, that implies that at some point you have to come off of a diet. And what happens then? And that's when you said earlier, you know, that plane takes off again, you, you put that weight back on. Um, but when you said sustainable change, and you've mentioned tracking and planning, that becomes more of lifestyle changes, slow, Absolutely. maybe smaller changes, things that, you know, you're going to be able to maintain long term well beyond you reach that goal that you set for yourself. Absolutely. And that you know, I, I, I mentioned this to, you know, all of my patients when they're doing well, they're doing great, everything's going well. And I always ask them, is this a lifestyle you feel like you can maintain and sustain? And they go, yeah. I mean, it's just a little, you know, a little change here, a little different here, but it's, it's, it's healthier. It, you know, I feel better. You know, I, I'm eating cleaner, you know, things are better. Absolutely. And so, and so again, the goal is really preparing them for maintenance, preparing them to to maintain that change that, that we, we embarked on in the beginning of the journey. For sure. And, you know, I liken it to, to when I talk to people about exercise and they start off very gung-ho and they're saying, I'm going to go to the gym seven days a week. I have a plan for this day and this day and this day. And my first reaction is, hold on a second. First of all, I don't think you need to go to the gym seven days a week. And two, you know, what if what if things get crazy? What if work gets busy? What if your child gets sick? What if uh, your car breaks down and you're without one for a few days? Uh, having that gung-ho mentality and if you're very, very set on it, and this implies to, to eating as well and other food habits, it's not sustainable and things happen. And that's when you kind of set yourself up for failure without a safety net. No, I agree. I, I, I tell people all the time, one of the reasons, you know, I said, look, we're going to do, what about this? What about that? I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to do one thing at a time. Keep it simple. So we start with educating them on just the basics. And then I go through, like, I just want you to start to reduce your carbohydrates, um, the refined carbohydrates. And then we take it from there. Yeah, we should exercise. Yeah, we, but in my opinion, I want them to do it safely. So I know that if somebody threw a 30 pound, a vest on my back and told me to run a marathon, I might injure myself. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather get 20, 30 pounds off the patient and then get them into moving more um, because this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so it, it, there's a method to my madness as far as how we move, how, how we go along this journey. And so like, oh, so should I start, like you said, should I start exercising seven days a week? No, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get there. Believe me, we will. But I want you to get certain things um, under your belt first, and um, and it's kind of like you said. What if something life happens? What if the kid gets sick? What if like you still need to be able to manage? How do patients generally respond to that? Because I imagine when they first come to you, uh, maybe they're in a very sensitive time in their life and they're very eager to to lose weight to get to 
you know, where they want or think they need to be very quickly. So how do they respond to the slower approach? Um, I think they respond pretty well because, because the weight still comes off because we have them drop their carbohydrates a significant amount compared to what they normally would eat. Like I said, the typical American will eat three or 400 grams of carbs a day, which is like insane. And even if they don't get down to their level, like I talk about in my book, No Guesswork, that everybody has a number like that you get below, you will predictably lose one to two pounds a week. And so for instance, my number is 70 grams of carbs. So I'm at my maintenance weight, so I don't have to be that low. But if I were to gain some weight, I could grab the dial <clears throat> and then turn it down to 70, and I will predictably lose one to two pounds a week. In the beginning, you don't necessarily have to get to 70 grams a day, let's say. But if you just cut your carbohydrates, particularly your refined carbohydrates and sugar, in half, you're going to, one, a lot of that initial weight is going to be water weight. Um, because you, you're holding on to so much water because of the insulin resistance and the amount of insulin that's needed to manage that many carbohydrates that someone ingests in a day. And so once you cut that down, your insulin levels plummet. And once your insulin levels go lower, you release water and then you start to burn fat because the only fat storage hormone that we know is insulin. So when your insulin is high, it takes your sugar, turns it, takes a triglyceride and then stores it as fat. There, it's, it's something called lipoprotein lipase that breaks the triglycerides down, puts it in the fat, so on and so forth. But it basically takes that sugar, puts it as a fat cell uh, or a triglyceride and, and stores it in a fat cell. And so, but if your insulin is low, the reverse process happens. So then your hormone-sensitive lipase, which is in the fat cell, breaks down the triglycerides and releases the fat. And so that's basically the process. Obviously, a little bit more intricate than that, but that is the, 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 the main process of how you store fat. And how you drive up insulin levels is by eating too many carbohydrates. So if I can get you to even reduce it by half, in the, you're going to see a significant weight loss in, in the very beginning which then motivates you to keep going. Now, that weight loss is going to slow down a little bit. And I tell people, if you lose you know, five or 10 pounds that first couple of weeks, don't be discouraged if that weight loss goes down to one or two pounds or three pounds a week. It's because that initial weight loss, half of it was water weight. And what we're expecting you to lose is you know, one to two pounds on average a week. Yeah, I imagine that this is not what your average patient gets when they are Googling how to lose weight and it tells them, oh, cut carbs, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you know, carbs is a loaded word and not all of them need to be demonized. Yes, it and, is. You know, this whole explanation of, you know, how uh, carbohydrates require water to store and how insulin levels affect this. That's not what their quick Google search, their quick fixes going to tell them. And, you know, that's why, you know, again, we'll say that we stress the educational component of this. But yeah. Listen, Dr. Hunt, I really, really appreciate your time. And as we wind down these podcasts, I'd like to ask a question to my guests that they were not expecting, either pertaining to or not pertaining to the topic. Uh, so this is somewhat pertaining to the topic. 
Um, we've preached a little bit about moderation, and I'm going to ask you, since we've talked about you know refined sugars and carbohydrates, what is your guilty pleasure food? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I um I'm not a foodie, so I will say though that even though I haven't had it much, I had it recently. I I and I didn't realize how much I missed it. I love lasagna. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I do, but I I had it recently and hadn't had it in like months. Like, but I had it recently and it was amazing. <laughs> Where did you have it? I had it at home. I had it at home. Um, so it was. It was like it was. It, it wasn't store bought. Like it was. It was homemade. So it was. It was. I great. was gonna say. I hope it was like a homemade, nicely done family lasagna. Um, that's yes, a great answer. Yes. I can appreciate that. <laughs> yes. But uh, Dr. Hunt, again, thank you for your time. This is incredibly educational. I got a lot out of this. I know the listeners will. Um, thank you for being on the Well Focused podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. Have a good day.